0: hi welcome to off script i'm zach lewis and
1: i'm dr draper
0: today on the show we're going to be taking a look at james mangold's ford v ferrari starring matt damon and christian bale we're also going to look at our very first disney plus feature very exciting andy uh we're going to take a look at noel on disney plus an early holiday film but probably something worth talking about or maybe not we're gonna do a little bit of talking about Disney Plus in between those reviews when we talk about how many sign ups they got on day one, since that just happened last week. And before we get to everything, we need to talk about the news. Our very first story, Dwayne Johnson's Black Adam, sets Christmas twenty twenty one release. Yes, Dwayne the Rock Johnson is going to be a superhero. Andy is our comic book man. Andy, who is Black Adam? And is Dwayne Johnson a good fit?
1: <laughs> yeah, so almost ten years ago or, or more, um, It was rumored that The Rock would take on the role of Black Adam. Black Adam is from the Shazam universe, uh, which came out uh, last year, Uh, and Black Adam is kind of like a fallen hero. He was uh, someone who was the kind of the chosen champion, became the wizard Shazam, and then but kind of fell from grace. Uh, He he kind of he wants to do good, but he he wants to do it his own way. Like he wants to get justice done kind of uh, ends justify the mean kind of character so he's kind of uh, a bad dude and we will i think eventually see him and and shazam uh fight each other you know several years uh, down the line
0: yeah i'm i'm interested to see how this gets tied into the bigger shazam universe because you're right it's the same but different uh i didn't know shazam was going to be a universe but obviously it's set within the dc universe so they've got superman and batman and the like running around in those movies so For what it's worth, it could be cool. I I do wonder why it took 10 years to get this off the ground, because it says here he's been attached to the role since 2008. Probably just because he's got a lot of projects, right? He's just a busy guy. There's that, and also DC
1: has not, you know, what were they doing with their universe? They started, you know, they got about five years in and realized what they were doing wasn't working. They've kind of taken a step back, and now they're doing much better, and they have more direction, and Shazam was was a big hit. So now it seems like the right time for The Rock to step forward because he doesn't want to step into anything that's not already going to be successful.
0: Uh, I'm interested to see the depth of this, of this hero as we've got him because, like you said, in Shazam... He is teased uh, as somebody who turned to the dark side and used his powers for evil. So that's not great. In this Instagram uh, illustration, The Rock posted to announce it, he's got his himself featured in, in uh, a hand-drawn illustration uh, as, as the character and also a human skeleton below him. <laughs> so I don't know what this Black Adam guy is all about, but I'm into the idea. Um, I'm sure he'll be something larger than just a one-off film right of course he's the rock he's the highest paid action star of all time so i don't know any other thoughts on this
1: yeah other than the so this illustration is by jim lee who's a big name in comic books uh drawing and writing and uh yeah you're exactly right he's gonna be he'll have his own movie i think and then we'll see shazam and him uh, fight each other at some point
0: yes and one more thing that's not Anything important, but just kind of interesting. Uh, the date this movie comes out, 12-22-21, is a palindrome. So, fun fact. Uh, anyway, our next story, Joker, becomes the first R-rated movie to gross $1 billion dollars. Worldwide, a billion dollars.
1: and it's a lot of money. It's massive. It's massive for a rated R movie. It's massive for any comic book movie, and it's especially massive massive for DC. Uh, again, we were saying that the first five years of their universe uh, was kind of all over the place, and now that they're really hitting their stride. And uh, usually, movies that make this kind of money are the big $100, 200 hundred million dollar budgets. Joker had a budget of around 60, 65 million. Uh, so it's it's making massive amounts of money. It's a worldwide hit. Um, this has a lot of implications. It has implications for what a rated R movie can be or what it can make. And also, what does DC do now? Because this was just supposed to be a one off film, but it's, it's kind of hard to ignore that kind of money and just and not go back to it
0: yeah you're absolutely right like how does dc respond to this um this movie is the most successful r-rated film of all time it beats out the matrix reloaded which made 828 million in 2003 and then deadpool 2 and deadpool 1 are right behind it with 7 785 and 782 million respectively so like even the next runner up isn't even a hundred million within this not even 150 like it is far and away the most successful R-rated film. Who could have expected this? Because we didn't, right? I, 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 I no, I mean, I, I
1: thought it would do well. I, I thought it would be popular here. Uh, I'm surprised that it's it's a popular character world the world over. That that's what's really surprising to me. And and the legs it's had. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, this is it's in its fourth fifth week and. You know, it, it's still earning several million each weekend. So it, it has a little bit longer to go before it's wrapped up.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm really, like you said, to bring it back around, really interested to see what, like, what, <laughs> what does DC do about this, right? Because they have to be just as surprised. There's no way they thought this was going to be as big of a deal, especially considering when it was announced, how many comic book fans out there were like, nope, I don't want to see a Joker origin story. The most interesting part about him is that he doesn't really have one. Um, suddenly, that's turned on its head, and people are really into this movie. Um, Hot topics going to start selling shirts. I'm sure, uh, you know, it's going to turn into a whole cultural thing, or maybe well, not.
1: Well, and not only that, but also the fact that this is not a traditional comic book movie. Like, you don't have big fights or big explosions or big effects. I mean, it's an art house movie. It's a character study. It's it's if it's a very small movie. And, it, and it's it's amazing that th- this kind of movie has has garnered this kind of money and and attention. It says a lot for what you can really do with film.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. Well, for more on Joker and R-rated films, I'm curious to see where things go. Keep it here on Off Script for more. I imagine this will move the window, right, the bar for success with R-rated films. Maybe we'll see more um, comic book films, wise. Not sure, but stand by, I guess. And the last article, uh, Justice Department moves to end paramount antitrust decrees. I originally saw this in the Wall Street Journal, which I don't pay for. So thank God Variety's talking about (laughs)
1: it. Uh, it's,
0: It's confusing, but I think we can break it down. Andy's got kind of the rundown on this. Please, Andy, take it away.
1: Okay, so there's a set of famous uh, antitrust laws that were developed in the 40s uh, in United States v. Paramount Pictures, where basically they said, if you are in production, you cannot be in distribution. If you are a film studio, you can't own a theater chain. Um, and the reason was, is there there was lots of anti-competitive things going on, uh, such as a practice known as block booking, where... Uh, a good example is if, let's say you want to have the latest Star Wars film, well, you also need to have screen these other 20 Disney films, or else we're not going to give you Star Wars. Uh, so, that was a practice known as block booking, and um, it was, again, part of this anti-competitive thing, and there were, also, there were only eight studios at that point in time as well. Um, so, these laws were, these antitrust laws were created... To help with um, competition, and again, the big takeaway was that a, dis- a production house could not have own a theater chain. So that is what they are going to do away with. Um, with now those practices, like I said, block booking and, and other antitrust things, those are still illegal. But a production company can now own a theater. So you could have Disney. Could oh start opening Disney theaters or Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers theater, and I still it worries me a little bit because it sounds like it could still, you know, hurt uh, theater chains and still be anti competitive. But that's the uh, that's what's happening. That's what this is about.
0: It's a startling thing. I think uh, I know I know they said this is going to have some kind of sunset period, a couple of years. They're going to kind of slowly roll out changes here, just to see if anything gets whack, but. I think it's important to remember like rules are in place for a reason, right? Just because nobody's broken the rules in a long time doesn't mean the rules aren't important. Um, I think especially in the age of Disney pictures, like this is a frightening thing because you're absolutely right. Disney could open up theaters, they could run only Disney trailers and have only Disney stuff featured around, uh, and they could charge $2 for popcorn and $4 for tickets and take a huge early loss to get a foothold in the marketplace, which would totally work. In fact, they could roll in a theater subscription and Disney plus together as one combined monthly fee and say, Hey, you can get Disney plus dude. Like they can do, there's, there's a ton of opportunity for them to break in here. Now the big, big three theater chains in America, AMC, Cinemark and Regal entertainment, obviously going to have something to say about this, but the big, the big, the big victim here is going to be the mom and pop shops, right? The small theaters. And that's a shame. Uh, Sure. Sure. I think it's worth kind of mentioning here according to the internet take us for as many as much salt as you need uh there there have been theater managers who have said that disney has already kind of negotiated their way into changing theater programming they'll say okay we'll give you star wars but you have to run it on three screens or you don't get it and for like an an eight or a ten screen theater like that's huge that's really gonna hurt you know they do not need it running on that many screens but yeah it is what it is uh the house of mouse rules all they're not alone. I mean, these are paramount rules based on what happened in the 40s, but um, I don't know. What do you think, Andy? Um,
1: you know, the, the reason the Justice Department addressed this was because of the, the change in, in the film landscape and technology. You know, they argue that streaming brings the uh, the content straight to the consumer so that there's no... Basically, they said these, these, these antitrust laws are ineffective at this point or really aren't needed. Um, which I, I disagree with, but of course I don't understand, fully understand the, the depth of, of them either. I do worry about, like I said, Disney could open their own theater chain, show... There's no reason they can't... Like, you can't force them to then show other films. They, they could just show the Disney line or then license other, uh, uh, other companies or force other companies to sell them a license or something to show them like there's there's a lot of negative that that can happen and i'm not real certain of the positive
0: yeah like there was a time when disney tried to run like small time amusement parks in certain cities and didn't work right disney has tried to branch out there's multiple disneylands and disney worlds all over the world like this is a company that is hungry for growth all right and there's a lot of potential disney movie theaters I think are a very strong possibility. I, I don't see why that wouldn't be a thing. Um, but we'll see what happens, man. Uh, in the age of streaming services, maybe not. Maybe maybe they're going to be too caught up with worrying about Disney Plus for now and focusing on that. Um, maybe they're hyperextended. Maybe they're the most successful movie company in history. Uh, with that, we should probably move on to our first film that is not a Disney picture. I don't believe it. But our next one is Noel. Andy's going to take the summary on this. Andy, please take it away ford v ferrari so the great carol shelby is gonna build a car to beat ferrari with a ford correct and how long did you tell them you needed two or three hundred years 90 days
1: (laughs) so this is the latest uh car racing film uh directed by james mangold who of course uh famously directed Logan from several years ago. It stars Matt Damon and Christian Bale as a two designer and race car driver who team up with Henry Ford II to take on uh, Enzo Ferrari in the late 60s in an attempt to build a supercar and win uh, the famous 24-hour Le Mans uh, race, which is a 24-hour race uh, famous in France. That's our. That's kind of our setup. Uh, we meet, um, Matt Damon plays Carol Shelby, a uh, famous uh, car designer of the uh, Shelby uh, Mustang, for instance. And like I said, uh, Christian Bale plays Ken Miles, uh, who's uh, a renowned uh, race car driver uh, from England. And uh, these guys are, are kind of on opposite ends of the, the spectrum. Uh, Christian Bale's character is very much about the racing, uh, you know, the art of racing and win at all costs. Uh, whereas Matt Damon, he he likes to, he knows that end, but he also, you know, he knows how to play nice with the suits, and that's kind of where a lot of our conflict uh, comes from. Is Ford is both the kind of the good guys and kind of the antagonists as well, because they want these guys to kind of play ball, and and you know, in the end, end of the day, they're trying to sell cars so that's what what our setup is uh we also have um john bernthal starring this at kratriona balfe who plays ken miles wife um and that's our
0: setup so zach what'd you think i did not expect this movie to take me on the ride that took me on i really didn't i was skeptical uh i came in thinking okay it'll be all right i didn't really go out of my, my way to watch the trailers or look at reviews and i was pleasantly surprised by how much i enjoyed ford v ferrari um surprisingly surprised actually if that makes any sense uh it, i i thought it was really good andy what did you think of ford v ferrari <laughs> for some reason
1: i think on a technical level it's it's really good but it it just didn't pull me in uh for one reason or, or another i i f- feel like maybe i was expecting a lot more from it and that that's a little unfair of, of me but the, the first opening scene it actually has matt Daming racing and in, in winning the le mans race and he's doing all this kind of philosophical talking about driving and life and and i thought the movie was gonna be that kind of movie kind of terrence <laughs> malick uh look at race how racing is like life something like that and, it, and it's not that at all and just the plot of it all just kind of reminded me of a Hallmark movie or like a Disney movie where it's like very predictable the good guy it's kind of like it's a mile wide and an inch deep deep all the all the good guys are good and kind of one-dimensional and they're just up against the evil Italian Ferrari guys anyways go on
0: to be fair that that's actually a pretty Mile wide and inch deep is probably a pretty good estimation of what this movie is, but I don't think that makes it bad, because I think that no. that wide mile is real wide, and I think it does a lot well in there. I think you're right. On a technical level, it's very impressive. Story-wise, maybe not so much. In fact, I think the, the ending left a little bit to be desired, but we're not going to talk about spoilers here. Let's get into this movie. Andy, where do we start talking about this?
1: Um, I... Let's talk about these cars. Let's talk about this racing. So one of the things I, I think it does really well is it, it gets it puts you behind the wheel. It gets you in these these supercars that could go two hundred miles an hour. Um, and it gets you on the track. So like the sound is is brilliant. The the rumble of the, of the you know you feel the stress of the driver. Th- that part, like the Gran Turismo racing part, is really brilliant.
0: Yeah. Right. Uh, the, the film it focuses around the Le Mans in uh, 1996, a 24-hour uh, car race um, um, globally celebrated back then. Of course, it's still a big deal now, but back then it was much more of a deal. Um, kind of thing that would be tuned uh, through, via satellite nationwide all over the country, all over the world, people were looking at Le Mans. Uh, back then, for a little history, Ferrari, Enzo, uh, owned by Enzo Ferrari, had won four out of five of the most recent Le Mans. The guy produced very few cars, but his cars were very, very sharp. Meanwhile, we've got the Ford Motor Company over in Detroit that's really struggling and cannot keep making cars because Chevy and everybody else is running circles around him when their marketing team suddenly decides, you know what? Let's shift here. What if we won Le Mans? Like, and the press and the photos, like people imagine a Ford coming across the ocean to win this tournament out of nowhere. Think about how impressive that would be. So being in 1966, these cars are very old, very vintage. And I think this is the first place you really start to find your divide as far as this film's fan base goes whether or not you are into cars will make a big difference in how you feel about this movie. Just like any movie, right? You wouldn't watch a rom-com if you weren't into romantic comedies. Like if you're not really into cars, you may not super be into this. Yeah. And I'm not super into cars, but back in the day, my dad and I would work on cars every Saturday, right? Or we'd fix things or my little Jeep back in high school. So I've got an affinity for this stuff. And I think that really resonates. Um, But for a lot of folks, They're just cars, right? Like, it's more about the characters inside the helmet, inside the driver's seat. And they're good, but Andy might be right. They may not be that deep.
1: Right, yeah, that, that's, like I said, that's a part that that stuck out to me. Kristen Bale's character is Ken Miles, is probably the most interesting character, uh, and he does an amazing job in this performance, which is just playing another Englishman, but somehow he manages to hold his face in a different way, where he literally looks like a different person. He doesn't look like Kristen Bale. He walks and holds himself, and like his gait is different, and he's really embodied, embodied an, another person. But everyone else is really pretty flat. Like Matt Damon is just a good old boy, you know successful car designer, successful race car driver. henry Henry Ford is and that's one of these plot points that kind of isn't super exciting to me because basically you had a bunch of wealthy people who achieved something because they had endless resources. And that's nah. not that's not super inspiring.
0: Right. And and I think I, I, I took a different kind of interpretation of the performances. Uh, you're right. Christian Bale was great. It looked like he had his jaw realigned or something <laughs> in this movie. Like, I don't get it. He, he he plays this very proper Englishman with this kind of Cockney accent almost reminded me of like Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins and. Um, He's like a classic Englishman, right? And he's very nice. He very he very rarely is particularly. I mean, he's aggressive, but because he's a racer, he's passionate. Very rarely is he punching people out. You know, he's, he's just kind of kind of a charming guy. Um, there's not a lot of cursing in this film, and I think that matters. It is uh, PG-13, I think. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and that shows. Matt Damon plays Carol Shelby, who created uh, some of the finest sports cars in the world. I thought he was pretty good. He's definitely. Is playing Matt Damon in a couple scenes, but he's got an accent and he chews a lot of gum and he wears a lot of really cool sunglasses. Uh, And and for what it's worth, I thought he was okay. John Bernthal plays Lee Iacocca. Bernthal wanted to be in this movie because he finally wanted to play a man in a suit, he said in an interview. And I thought he did a pretty good job. Like, for for being a marketing guy who's not that multifaceted, he's interesting. Like, he doesn't bore you. And Josh Lucas plays Leo Beeb, an executive at Ford, uh, who's kind of out to get shelby and ken miles doesn't like that they're winning races and he has nothing to do with it this is the first time i've seen josh lucas in a movie since sweet home alabama uh (laughs) last i heard he was doing home depot ads on the radio uh he's actually kind of charming for being a bad guy uh so was nice seeing him on screen again Uh, we've got the son from a quiet place plays christian bale's son ken miles son in this movie who's pretty okay and that, that's about it. That, those are really our outstanding performances. But for what it's worth, like they kept me interested through a two and a half hour runtime, which was a lot. It seemed, but somehow I didn't get bored. How'd you feel with that? It,
1: it's it's too long. I I definitely <laughs> felt the time. Uh, and then the thing is, uh, this story is somewhat uh, predictable. We we won't do any spoilers, but I went in thinking certain things were going to happen, and, and they did. And so well, it just takes forever to get there. And and I feel like what was really missing, I, I thought we were going to get some more behind the scenes of how they won, or like you know what what incredible engineering they did. And you by the time they decide to build the car, they just kind of do it. Like the next scene is like, oh, we built it. Now make it better. Um, so we, we don't get, I don't know. I, I was just hoping to get some more insight into the, like, oh, this incredible engineering idea that came to us and we, we realized we could do this better or that better or something.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I went and saw this movie with a buddy of mine who's a, who's a real car guy and, uh, he, we got out of it and went and got a beer afterwards. He said, any concepts in there? Anything that was really confusing? I said, no, because the movie doesn't dwell too much on the actual engineering. There's a bit early in the film uh, where they talk about, hey, what if we... Swap out the brakes on the car in the middle of Le Mans and they're like oh that's a cool idea and a guy draws up a diagram and then that doesn't come up for another 90 minutes and then towards the end of the film it's relevant again suddenly and it's like oh yeah I remember when that happened I think I think Mangold was walking this fine line where he didn't want to get too into car speak where it was confusing but at the same time, that really makes it seem a whole lot like, well, the car is irrelevant. It's all about the driver, which is exactly what this movie is pushing. Carol yeah. Shelby is defending Christian Bale's character, Ken Miles, throughout the whole thing. No, no, no. It's about the driver. The driver is my guy. That's that's what's important. And in that way, Matt Damon's character plays a little bit of like a sports coach to, to our Ken Miles, right? He's He's been to Le Mans. He's, he's run the race. And now he has to teach the next generation of friend or whoever how to do it. And that's sweet. But... You're right. The title is Ford v Ferrari, and and you'd think that'd be more about the cars and less about the people. But Henry Ford II, and Enzo Ferrari, are both characters in this film. So I guess there's a little bit of a you know, a, a twist there. It's unexpected.
1: Uh, yes, I <laughs> I, agree, I agree with you. One of the things that's that the good moments that does stand out to me is um someone asks uh Carol Shelby, Matt Damon's character. About like, he's like, what is Lamont like? What, what is it? It's just a race. And he goes, no. And he goes into this long monologue describing, you know, it's 24 hours. You have to drive at night. You can't really see anything half the time. You're tired. You're hungry. You're angry. You're like, it's, it's a great bit. It's probably one of the better parts uh, of the acting uh, in the film. But, but like you said, it begins, it, it's all about the people and not about the vehicles.
0: Yeah, and and that really comes through in the editing and direction. Um, Like you said earlier, the car scenes are put together phenomenally well. It feels like you're behind the wheel. It feels like you're flying down the road. And it feels like these cars are rickety and dangerous and from 1966 because they are. Uh, There's not a whole lot of seatbelts in this movie. It's not very safe. Um, But at the same time, you get a whole lot of these... Character dramas in 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 the curves, right? When the movie's not in a straightaway and just driving straight for it, you, you things slow down and you get these wonderful little set pieces, like when Henry Ford II calls up Carol Shelby, Matt Damon, and he calls him into his office. He says, "Give me one reason why I shouldn't fire you right now for losing Daytona or whatever last month." And he says, "Well, uh, let, let me explain." And you get this wonderful monologue from Matt Damon. It's very tense and very 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 sharp. Ken Miles, Christian Bale has a, has a few of those scenes. They're really engaging and 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 a scene that stood out to me in particular that really highlighted like how smart this movie can be is the night before le Mans, ken miles is at home with his wife and son his son is staying up late because he's nervous about his dad going to france and racing in this 24-hour race it's very dangerous ken miles Matt, uh, uh, christian bale walks into his room and he sees him doodling uh, the, the le Mans track on the back of a cereal box is oh this is great and the, and the kid says well tell me about it walk me through the track And there in the scene, we have Christian Bale walking his son through... The track and we get to experience that, right? So they walk the audience through, yeah, here's exactly what it looks like. Here's a top-down view, here's this first turn, you have to slow down here, then you get up here. And then later, when you get to Le Mans, you have a pretty good understanding of what's happening in the track, like it gives it context. And this whole movie, despite being two and a half hours and pretty long, does a great job of setting that stage and making you feel like you're in the world and making it feel epic and grand. Uh, Mangold has a confidence to his directing. Um, it's really sharp and, and I felt like it really showed in this movie.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it is important to remember that, you know, this isn't like a normal sports movie. These are, you know, it's race, it's high speed racing. There is always a chance of life and death issues Um, and that kind of comes up through the film and it's easy to kind of forget that especially in early on because they seem to be having just so much fun racing these cars around the test track and trying to make them faster and faster and corner better stop better and we forget that there is a real mortality issue as well if you've ever seen the documentary uh, Senna about the uh, Formula One driver that really puts that into perspective
0: Uh, I really enjoyed the I guess, setting of this movie being 1966. Obviously, they have to make a lot of efforts to make things look period and look appropriate. Did a great job. It definitely feels like you're dropped into the world, and by the end of two and a half hours, it feels like you've been there. You saw it. And I think a big part of the reason that works is not only clever set design and great costuming. I Like I said, the Matt Damon wears great sunglasses. The sunglasses in this movie are outstanding. If you look at the cars, <laughs> check out the rims. Like, I'm telling you, they're legit. Um, but also... Not a whole lot of very obvious CGI. I think there's a lot of CGI in this movie, but it looks very photorealistic, so you don't really catch it. So it looks like they're really flying down the road in these cars. Maybe they are, or maybe they're not, because that's unsafe. But I was really impressed by the presentation. It just felt very alive.
1: Yeah, I I agree. There's definitely some shots that are completely CGI, and then some that are kind of half and half, or just a little bit here. Uh, For the most part, it's very well done. And I'm sure that they probably use some body kits to... Rebuild uh, these old car- these old cars because I mean they they only make it a very limited amount of them and they're probably in museums or in uh, you know rich people's houses, um, so that they would have had to rebuild a lot of those uh, using body kits. So it again, like you said, the presentation is really top notch.
0: Yeah, it, it really is i didn't feel like it felt too long like i said it almost reminded me of something like i don't want to say it's like lord of the rings but you you get into the world right like if you can really immerse yourself in it and it's just things hit just right and the car stuff isn't too much and and you feel like you can kind of forget that you're staring at christian bale and matt damon and get into their characters i felt like it was okay I, i i really didn't mind it um i in fact yeah like i said earlier i was surprised at how much i enjoyed it um what? What did you? Any other thoughts? I guess, Andy. What do you think?
1: I think one one thing that did kind of stand out to me is there's kind of a stark uh, lack of diversity in the film. Uh, there are only mm, a, yeah. a, there were only a couple of female characters. One is uh, Ken Miles's wife, uh, Molly Miles, played by Catriona Balfe. Um, she has a very small role, and that role is Ken Miles's wife. Uh, there are no people of color and very few women. So that's. And, I, and I'm sure that's a, that's accurate of the time and the industry and, and the place, but it uh, definitely did stick out to me. And again, it makes it less inspiring when it's you know the story about uh, wealthy men, um, sorry, <clears throat> succeeding because of endless wealth, basically. Right. When you
0: okay, real quick, when you say no people of color, you're not referring to uh, the Italian race team. Who is not really featured, to be fair, and does not have many lines. In fact, there is only one actually subtitled translated line in this whole film. Uh, and I could tell it almost, Mangold almost didn't want to put it in, because he made it almost the whole movie without ever having to use subtitles for foreign language. It was really cool. Right. Um, but it does show up. Uh, you're right. It, it's definitely 1966 and how. It's all it's all white dudes. <laughs> like, that's the scene. That's, that's what's going on. Um, there aren't even a whole lot of, like, mechanics of color. I think there's one... Nope. He's not even Hispanic. No, I'm wrong. You're right. Yeah. You're, you're, you're totally right. I, my, my, I, um, <laughs> I'm sorry to, to deflate you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, d- I'm disappointed that I didn't notice this because my, my, my yeah, skin color is showing, but anyway, uh, yeah, no, you're right. And, and that's, you know, I guess that's the take it or leave it thing. I, I didn't notice because I was super into the film. and was like, Ooh, fast cars. <laughs> um, you're, you're right. I, I, you know, what's the alternative, I guess, you present a version of 1966 that may not be quite historically as accurate, but is definitely more fun, I think, to audiences. Mm-hmm. But I'm a dope and didn't figure that out. Man, I'm so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's all right. It's Sorry, all
0: right. world. Yeah, I, I missed that one. <laughs> Snuck by me like a fast car. Any other thoughts or for recommendations? I think we're ready. Andy, would you recommend Ford v Ferrari?
1: Yeah, I think overall i I would um, it's fantastic in its presentation. you know if you're a car person, you know it'll be right up your alley we, we do get a little bit of a simplified uh, storyline where Ford is both somehow the good guy and the bad guy at the same time uh, as they compete against uh, Ferrari, like I said, the cinematography and the acting. All, all the technical stuff is really top-notch. And then, like I said, the storyline is a little simplistic for me. But overall, I'd recommend it.
0: You know, I, I'd recommend it, too. I, I told Andy right when I walked out of it, I was like, man, this might be one of my favorite films of the year. Um, because, man, I got so into it. Like, the feeling of speed and elation that comes with the racing in this film is really tremendous and, and are you get so invested in your characters? I, I think the less, you know, going in the better, I didn't bother looking up, you know, how, how did the 1966 Le Mans turn out? <laughs> don't it's a lot more fun. If you don't know, you know, and, and it's a lot more fun. If you don't really know anything about Carol Shelby and Ken miles, the movie of course ends with a, you know, a couple of text cards, like here's what happened to these real people. So you'll get it by the end. Like you'll, you'll find out where things go. And I think it's a fun ride. I really do. Uh, I'd recommend this to folks like my parents. Uh, You know, it's PG-13. It doesn't really hurt anybody's feelings um, outside of the rampant whiteness that slipped right by (laughs) me. Uh, So watch out for that. But if that doesn't... (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What I'm saying is it's it's not full of cursing. It's kind of a charming story. It's not something you take your kids to. But if you, yeah, if you if you got a you know a teenager who's into cars, or you got a buddy like going to car shows with stuff, you're gonna love this movie. You're gonna be super into it. I think yeah. it's a solid man picture. I really do.
1: And I was gonna say, I did see actually on Netflix there is a documentary about this this whole rivalry of the Le Mans races of the late '60s. Uh, if you're looking for some supplemental material uh, to watch.
0: No, nice nice recommendation Andy damn look at you <laughs> I supplemental just to, material I
1: stumbled across it last night it's the only reason I know
0: I, hey I dig supplemental material I'll probably end up checking that out we should move on to our next uh, uh, segment here Andy's graciously agreed to well I should say he found the link so he's going to talk about it Andy please take it away it's time for the death of cinema <laughs>
1: Okay, so this week we are talking about Disney+. Plus, and after it launched last week, uh, Disney reported 10 million uh, sign-ups on day one, which is huge. Uh, it made their stock jump 5%, which is big in in the stock world. Um, and th- these are huge numbers. And, and now it's, it is important to say that this is sign-ups and not subscriptions, because people get a seven-day free trial, but you still have to put in your credit card to get that free ch- trial. So I'm sure a, a lot of those were converted. But this is huge. Their, their platform is off to a huge start. Um, it's been everywhere. Everyone's been talking about it. And so we wanted to talk a little bit about its it launch and our review because we've, Zach and I have both uh, had some time to uh, reflect on Disney Plus last week. So Zach, what do you think of Disney Plus so far?
0: man I think a lot of it I really do Uh, it has been and and, and I say this with the with the understanding of the following it has been a bumpy launch it hasn't been great it didn't work great on day one it didn't work great over the weekend and during peak hours like evenings uh, it still doesn't work all that great but for a brand new streaming service they clearly borrowed a lot of ideas and probably former employees from other companies like (laughs) Amazon and Netflix and Hulu to really create like a service that feels contemporary, it doesn't feel outdated. All of the features, or most of the features, of any other streaming service are on here and present and working as of launch. I think their biggest issue has been streaming uh, servers and how much space they have to accommodate for 10 million people. But Andy was onto this thing even before I was. You were on this in the morning, and I'm excited we finally get to talk about it on the show.
1: Yeah, I was like a, a kid at Christmas. Um, I woke up early because uh, I looked it up. The Mandalorian was gonna TV show was going to be starting at 8 a.m. the first episode, so I got up, downloaded. Well, I was in a panic downloading everything because I had to download the app on the Xbox and then download it on my phone, and then I couldn't sign in, and I was panicking. Um, and then the episode wouldn't work. <laughs> so yeah. it, it was a little frustrating initially, but I, I was able to poke around, and, and it... The, most of the shows and things did work by the afternoon. It was fine. And I was able to log on and watch, uh, that star Wars show. Um, since then, uh, again, we've watched one of the original movies for the, for this show. And then also, uh, I've watched some other, uh, what else did I watch? X-Men, <laughs> I watched some of the original X-Men, um, so far, it's it's pretty slick. I haven't had any problems outside of the launch day, and that's we're, we're kind of living in a in a time when digital products we expect them to be a little rocky on day one, and so Disney Plus was no exception. Uh, but I was pretty in, impressed, and and the library is really is so extensive. There's so much on there, especially some of their back catalog, and it's, it'll be interesting to see what comes up in the months to come.
0: Yeah, and that's where I've been spending a lot of time. Not quite the back catalog, but a lot of the Disney classics. They've got this section in there called Out of the Vault, which is a lot of their old Disney masterpiece collection. Um, I've been all over those things, man, because they remind me when I was a kid. I used to watch those movies all the time. Uh, 101 Dalmatians, 1961, that movie came out. Pinocchio came out in 1940. Sword in the Stone came out in 65. Alice in Wonderland, I think, came out in the 50s. I know I, there's the first four I watched like one, two, three, four. And I don't even love those movies. It was just that I could watch them and they were available. And I was like, Oh man, Fine. I haven't seen these in years. Yeah. Of finally. course the Mandalorian. And I promise we'll find a way to talk about that on this show. I don't know how, but one day <laughs> we're going to do some kind of semi Mandalorian review. Uh, in the meantime, hit us up on social media. We'll tell you all what we think about it. But, Um, man, I, I'm impressed by exactly what you said, how many titles there are. It is crazy. And then you get into series and it's like, oh God, there's even more. There's stuff in here. I didn't even know they covered, including, which feels out of place now, but it's 21st century Fox property, 20th century Fox property, the Simpsons, which is on there in its entirety and feels really weird. next to like Disney's recess and Doug, you know, like here's the Simpsons every season of it. And I know people have said it's cropped and it looks weird or whatever, but like that's not the point. The point is it's all in one place now, and and it seems like it's supported by a company who's really going to be behind it and only growing. They're only going to add more stuff, which is whack, man. It really is.
1: Yeah, it, it has a good library to start with, but I think as they add more shows, that will also um, add more subscribers. I, I uh, saw in this article the, uh, from Collider about their 10 million sign-ups. They are hoping to hit between 60 and 90 million subscribers in 2024. If that were to happen, that would be, be not quite as big as Netflix, but it would be a serious contender and threat to Netflix.
0: Sure. And I know everybody's speculating they'll likely up the price probably in the next year or two, right? That seems like a very natural move. But for now, 10 million signups is nothing to scoff at, even if these are seven-day free trials and Verizon users who get a year for free, which is insanity as an AT&T user. How dare those dirty Verizon people get free Disney Plus, but it is what it is. Um do we get Apple Plus or something? Do we get anything? I, I, we'll talk about it later. But... There's a
1: deal with them, too, but I don't know. Okay. It's...
0: Great. I get my cool Apple Plus. Neat.
1: <laughs> well, that that's worth talking about as well, is after all this hype and all this uh, kind of pomp and circumstance of Disney Plus, you know, I was, I thought, I was like, well, what happened to Apple TV Plus? Was there anything? So I went back and looked at some articles, and it, there was nothing. It had, like, no press except... There was one article I found that it was basically very uh, – some big executive at Apple had left because of how poor the launch was of Apple TV+. V+. But it just – it came and went. No one said anything. No one was like, oh, check out these shows. Apparently, all the shows were very poorly reviewed um, by critics, uh, not by audiences, though, on on Apple TV+. But it's, it's hailed in comparison –
0: Yeah. To the launch of Disney Plus. It's not even a contest. And I mean, just looking at the base categories, like the titles are so strong Disney, Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, Nat Geo. And just in the week it's been out, I've talked to people who have it, and everybody's watching completely different stuff. My sister has been killing gargoyles, that old TV show. I talked to a guy today, all he's been doing is watching Star Wars movies all he's watched just like the straight first eight episodes. He's killing him. Well, seven cause eight's not on there, but first seven episodes, he's just one by one nailing them. Everybody like it, it can greet such a diverse range of interests right from Jump Street. Like, there's so many different options for things that are interesting and unique. My dad got it. He was like, oh man, Nat Geo's on here, which I'm not into, but he's totally into He's a former history teacher. He can't wait to watch The Lost Tomb of Alexander the Great. Like, it's it's wild to <laughs> me how far this thing can reach. Disney has really, really come out of the gate strong with an impressive product here, which I guess is no surprise.
1: Yeah, and one of the things you touched on that The Last Jedi is not on there, there's a number of Disney properties that are not on here yet and that's because they have deals that need to run out first uh mostly with netflix um because originally disney had licensed a number of their content to netflix in a deal several years ago once that runs out then everything that they have licensed to netflix will come over to uh, disney plus so there's a few titles that aren't quite there yet but they'll in the next six months or so will be on there
0: Right. Missing Marvel movies, Marvel series they're supposed to work on. Things like Loki and She Hulk and Moon Knight is getting a show, which is wild if you don't know anything about those characters. Uh, they're going to add Star Wars films. They're going to add more Disney series. Disney live action remakes are going to go on there. We haven't watched Lady and the Tramp yet. I don't, you haven't watched it, right? I haven't. No. Yeah, I haven't watched it yet, but I'll end up watching it eventually. Um, There's other original Disney shows, classics like I like. They're going to be added there soon. And 20th Century Fox properties are coming. So not only is this a robust service from the start, it's only going to get better. So stay subscribed to Disney Plus and keep giving the house of Mouse your dollars, I guess. (laughs) That's right. Um, Any other thoughts on this, Andy, uh, before we move on? Um, I
1: mean, other than I think the launch has been really good. It's been really popular. A lot of people have gotten it. A lot of people have asked me what I thought. Um, People have asked to borrow the login already. (laughs) Um, Oh, yeah, I know. Which they have been very generous about. You can have up to four streams and up to seven profiles. So they're not policing uh, account sharing very much yet.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of uh, Chris... (laughs) Christine and I are getting married in December, which is very exciting. We're very excited. Uh, uh, but one of her uh, stepsisters reached out and was like, "Hey, heard you guys got that Disney Plus," and I was like, "Ooh, are we on are we on streaming service like friendly <laughs> are terms we on streaming now?" Terms. And they pointed out we're going to be brother and sister in law, and I was like, "That's a good point. I didn't think about that." Family's growing. I know. I'm, I'm excited. Thanks for the congratulations, Andy. So, uh, more on Disney Plus, I guess, as it comes. Like I said, uh, I want to find a way to talk about the Mandalorian. I think. We came up with something last week that might be like a weird kind of semi way to cheat this whole movies only thing and still talk about it. Uh, but we'll, we'll see if we get around to it. Odds are by then it'll be over and done with. So keep it here for more on Disney Plus. And speaking of Disney Plus, when you talk about our very first movie that's a Disney Plus ex- exclusive that we're reviewing on the show, it's very exciting. I'm going to take the review on this one. The movie is Noel.
1: Snow Cone! Ah! Oh (laughs) yes, here's my hyperactive little reindeer.
0: Noel is the story of Anna Kendrick who plays Noel, who is Santa Claus's daughter. Very different from what we're used to in normal uh, Christmas films. She is struggling to make Christmas work after the passing of our very old, very jolly Santa Claus. He's he passed away 6 months ago. It's coming up on Christmas and she has to convince her brother, Bill Hader, to be the new Santa Claus and go out and 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 bring Goodwill and cheer to all. She's surrounded by a cast of characters who are pretty helpful, mostly including Shirley MacLaine, who plays a uh, kind of saucy elf who, uh, you know, I've got thoughts about her. And also Billy mm-hmm. Eichner, who plays her cousin uh, in, in, a, in a kind of technical role, um, mm-hmm. but also kind of an ignorant villain. <laughs> I think this movie takes a, right I think this movie takes a lot of liberties as being a Christmas film and it's important to frame it in that way because I think as a Christmas movie this movie is totally serviceable. I think sure. as a standard film it, it maybe has some problems, but before I get too far away and tell Andy what we're doing, of course, uh, there has to be an adventure in this picture. Uh, Noelle f- recommends her brother go on vacation. He escapes to the fabulous Phoenix, Arizona, where our young Andy Draper knows all about because he lived there or nearby. For, you didn't live in Phoenix, did you?
1: No, I lived in Phoenix.
0: Okay, well, great. Yeah, you live there. Perfect. Uh, so we'll get into that. Um, he, he takes off for Phoenix for vacation. When the sleigh mysteriously comes back without him, uh, she has to hop on board, leave the North Pole, find her brother, save Santa, and save Christmas. Andy, what did you think of Noel? So it's
1: definitely a Disney Channel original movie Yes, on a much higher budget. Some of it is really good. There's some really good A-plus a+ level things, and then there's some... B and C level uh, plus things. So it's about half and half, but it's a, Di- it's a Christmas movie on the Disney channel. Like, you know what you're signing up for. It's very family friendly, very wholesome, uh, very simple in its plot, but we do get uh, pretty g- good performances from Anna Kendrick and Bill Hader. That- that's the only reason I watched uh, this film at all was because uh, they were both in it. Uh, so it's kind of a mix. We have a list stars, but kind of with B list material.
0: Yes. I, I think the best place to probably start this conversation is that the stars let's get to the directing at the end. I think that's probably where the most problems are, but for oh. now let's talk about our stars and performances. Like I said at the top, this is an Anna Kendrick vehicle. She is the main character. In fact, I read in an interview the only reason she took this role is because she always wanted to be like in a Christmas movie and save Christmas, which is like, great for her. It's very endearing. And her character in this movie <laughs> is very endearing. Noelle is very chipper, and she's not meant to be Santa Claus like her brother is, but she wants to be helpful, and she wants to support him because Christmas is her favorite day of the year, so she makes cards and, and helps out at the North Pole, and does everything she can to be as supportive about Christmas as possible. And she plays against... Bill Hader, who does not want to be Santa Claus and is not into the idea. And he's like, I don't think I'm any good at this. He's kind of this (laughs) nervous, you know, Bill Bill Hader-y kind of character. The two of them are good. I I wish Bill Hader had had a little bit more screen time and just a little bit more time to kind of like flex his comedy chops. I feel like he was maybe fighting our our director, Mark Lawrence, a little bit on that and kind of just went along with what he said. Maybe it's because he knows it's like a Disney Channel film. Well, I should say it's like an ABC holiday original right right family makes those it's it's very similar to that in quality so if you're expecting like a hollywood blockbuster cool it um so i I wish he'd been able to do a little bit more same with billy eichner i I felt like he maybe was a little underused he's got like two funny billy eichner-esque lines in this movie and other than that he plays a very toned down tech support glasses wearing character but noel our main character She's a lot of fun. She's very bubbly, and she she plays it up. And even when she's trying to talk to CGI reindeer, Anna Kendrick goes for it. And she is really what carries the film, like fundamentally across the board. Uh, Shirley MacLaine is okay as as a, a elf. Honestly, I I kind of could have rather have done without her, but it is what it is. <laughs> and it's worth mentioning. There's one other character in here we should talk about. Uh, Jake Hatman, who plays a private eye in, in, in Phoenix, Arizona, who helps Noel find her brother. Uh, he's played by a man named Kingsley Benadir, uh, a newcomer. I've never seen him in anything, but last I saw, he was in King Arthur, uh, the Guy Richie film. He was so tone deaf. He was so boring and not exciting. And I didn't know if he was just supposed to be grumpy because he went through a divorce, but like, man, that guy was just not, he never smiled. I was just like, dude, you're in a Christmas film, like you got to be a little bubbly, you know. You got to be a little Hallmark here. You can't just be grumpy, old, you know, Mister Scrooge. Maybe that's who he was supposed to be, but as as a character who kind of plays a foil, not necessarily in a romantic sense for Noel, which I thought was smart. Um, he's just kind of boring, and and he's like top billing in this movie. He's like the fourth billed character, so I don't know.
1: Yeah, he's definitely the character that makes this feel the most like a Disney Channel original movie or an ABC. Uh, special. This reminded me of, uh, of a Christmas movie from a year or two ago with um, Vanessa Hudgens that's on Netflix. That's a similar... She plays like twins or something, but it, it's it's that same level of plot of I have to save Christmas or save this in the town and, I, and learn a lesson in the end kind of <laughs> uh, film. But, but you're right. We are a lot of our talent is, feels a little bit wasted. Like I said, Bill Hader, uh, Billy Eichner, like if you get Billy Eichner, you're getting him for one reason and one reason only. And that's so he can, you know, go on, go on his famous rants and right. he doesn't really do that. Um, I think Anna Kendrick is great. I think there's actually a lot of funny moments in the, in the movie. I definitely laughed out loud several times. Um, and I think there's good jokes and she delivers them or she de- you know, de- delivers the comedic situations. Uh, uh, really well because she's when they, when they leave um, the North pole, she's a ascend- it's the first time she's ever been out. So it, it's, it's, this has been compared to elf, uh, yes, Farrell's film. So it's a little bit of that same situation where she's like the super Christmas cheery person in a, in hot Phoenix, um, you know, trying to be super cheery when everyone else isn't. And also like she misses the cold and the, the snow and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I, I realized this was basically Elf um, right about as She <laughs> arrived to Phoenix. And I was like, oh, it's a fish out of water comedy starring a beloved character from the North Pole who's having to survive in the cruel, harsh world of modern Americana. Got it. Yeah, mm. which is what it is. Um, I, I think, but again, Anna Kendrick plays it differently enough and charmingly enough that I think it's, it's again, serviceable. I really do. We should talk about our settings. We have the North Pole that looks like a strange combination of CGI and, like, Whoville from the original, well, the, the first live-action Grinch, I should say. The uh-huh. Jim Carrey live-action Grinch. Um, it's goofy. It's small. Again, mostly CGI and green screen. But it works. Like It checks the boxes. Yep, they're at the North Pole. They, they ice skate around and they drink hot cocoa with peppermint in it. And there's penguins, which is fun. Um, and that's fine. Uh, we got a couple interiors of Santa's workshop. Charming. I don't know, it's just Santa's cabin. Really, you never actually see inside Santa's workshop in this movie. Um, charming, fun, good set dressing. Phoenix, Arizona, on the other hand, <laughs> is very plain. They they either shot this and Andy's got a hot take on this. I thought they shot this at some kind of out outdoor shopping mall. Um, Andy's saying it's it's more likely a backlot, which yeah I would agree is probably true. If not for the absurd number of name brand references in this, including oh Old the Navy, product Petco, placement, Bed Bath and Beyond. Like it really looked like they were at an outlet mall because there were so many yeah product placement sponsor names in this. But it's a Disney film. It is what it is. I guess they got to get it off the ground. Uh, it, a lot of that was green screen. A lot of that was interiors. Yeah, the, when they're outside, it looks like it's constantly sunset, which I didn't understand. I, I I know Phoenix doesn't look like that. Um, like across multiple days in the world of the film, the lighting is the exact same. Like, <laughs> yes. it's it's, it's a always little, about like, five thirty. Yeah, it's a it's a little lazy. All right, I feel pretty good about saying that. But again, it's not really about our settings. It's about the Christmas spirit. Andy, what did you think?
1: so I thought the North pole stuff was done really, really well. Uh, like uh, mostly because like the, the costumes and the set are really convincing. Everyone has these super elaborate, uh, Christmas costumes, uh, and like the decorations and everything look really, really good. The CGI mo- is pretty bad. Like again, but it's, it's, it's Disney channel, ABC special CGI level. Um, there, there's a reindeer, uh, like a small reindeer called a uh, snow, snow cone, snowflake, something like that. Um,
0: I thought it was snowflake, but then later in the film, I could have sworn she called him snow cone. So I'm yeah, not really sure. Yeah, I think sure. it's snow cone. Yeah, snowball. I thought for a minute, like I, yeah, and
1: that's uh, particularly bad. And there's there's some bad CGI. There's some good CGI as well. The Phoenix setting is completely. Uh, unconvincing. I've lived in in Phoenix, in Central <laughs> Phoenix, and uh, first of all, Central like Phoenix isn't very nice if you know anything about that city. All the money is outside of Phoenix. So if you were going to film in, in a nice place, you would film in Scottsdale or Chandler or anywhere besides Phoenix itself. Um, but yeah, the the there like you said, there at some plaza or mall or something. It, it all looks like a Hollywood backlog. Like, none of those buildings look real. None of these stores look real. And again, the product placement is pretty gratuitous because you have the, this guy runs up and he's
0: like wearing a Petco hat and a Petco shirt. And he's like, oh, I'm, this thing just happened over at the Petco. He shows, he shows up in two scenes that counted, possibly three. Yes, and in both scenes, he's wearing the exact same Petco uniform, like with prominent branding featured on the front. And then anything that's not a name brand, anything that's the knockoff, like Jake Hapman P.I., it looks like the cheapest logo you could have ever thrown together. Like some some P.A. I was just like, draw something on this board. It looks like a P.I. sign. It's fine. Put a little magnifying glass on it. It's great. Like, it, it, does, it, it does hurt the presentation. But that's an adult way to look at it, I think. It, it, I think where we really struggled was the lack of diversity in settings. Like there's, cause there's a lot of places we go in Phoenix, but it's all supposed to be within this one kind of shopping mall ish area. <laughs> yeah. yeah like a at hospital one point, there. Right. At one point. Yeah. At one point we make a leap from a private investigator's office to a grocery store, to a homeless shelter, and then to a yoga studio all within like 15 to 20 minutes of screen time. And it's like, these are not all in the same place. Like that does not, those, pl- those establishments do not exist together, even in the Grand Phoenix, Arizona. Um, so that's confusing. I thought the script, we should move on to that, is all right. A lot of Christmas cheer. I, I think I think our actors probably had a little bit of opportunity to kind of improv, except for, again, Billy Eichner, who had like two good lines. Um, Hater felt a little suppressed by the script. I think Anna Kendrick really was able to have the most fun and kind of shine through it.
1: Definitely. You know, I, I've i heard before, if the actors look like they they had fun making the movie, then the movie's probably not very good. And that's what this looks like. It looks like Anna Kendrick had a whole lot of fun, but the movie's just uh, pretty drab. And, and But again, this, this is essentially a kid's movie, a kid's holiday movie. That's who it's aimed for. And in that regard, it completely succeeds.
0: Yeah, and, and we should, one more thing, talk about the directing before we move on to how this acts as a Christmas film, because I think we're both in agreement on that. Uh, Mark Lawrence. If you don't know, this is the first film Mark Lawrence has directed that doesn't feature Hugh Grant, and he's directed <laughs> like seven films, so take that with a grain of salt. He also wrote almost all of those films. He wrote and directed this. It's his first non-Hugh Grant picture. I guess Hugh was busy. Um yeah, it's, it's not awesome. And, and like, I don't, maybe I'm wrong, man. Cause he, he's got some good movies under his belt. He did, uh, I was just looking at these. He did Miss two weeks notice, music and lyrics are all fine. You know, did you hear about the Morgans it was okay. Um, and this just feels subpar, but I think he probably had a limited budget. I think he probably just knew what he was working with, right? I'm making a Christmas film. It's for Disney. Maybe I'm going to take it easy. I'll try something different. I won't use Hugh Grant. I'll, I'll try to kind of branch out. I don't think it was really a success. I think the editing's pretty poor. Um, but ultimately, it's more than the sum of its parts.
1: Yeah, and, and it was, uh, again, our first foray into Disney Plus original film uh, filmmaking. Uh, our other choice was the live-action Lady and the Tramp, which I wasn't super <laughs> excited for either. Um, but but now we know where kind of the bar is, where you know you are going to get some Disney Channel original movie level filmmaking, and but also hopefully we'll, we'll get more because I know they're spending some serious money on original content, so I'm hoping we'll get some more mature filmmaking uh, down the road.
0: It's funny, yeah. Watching this, I I kept thinking of like <laughs> Netflix original films we watch. Um, And unless it's something like Roma, it's almost always not as good as something that would come out in theaters. Yeah. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised by that, being a Disney Plus picture. And and it wasn't until after I watched it that I kind of looked at it through the lens of like, an ABC original Christmas film. Again, perfectly serviceable. If you're here, if it's December and you want a cute movie to watch with with the family, please do. This is actually, I looked it up, this is the first G-rated live action film since 2015 that's had any (laughs) kind of release. Honestly, at least by any kind of major studio. It is G. It is perfectly fine. There is nothing abhorrent or violent or confusing. It is totally family-friendly, bubbly Anna Kendrick Christmas. And for that, it does exactly the job it needs to do. Does it work that well as a film on its own? Not really. But if you're here for the holidays, this movie is here for you. That's, what
1: I think. <laughs> that's right. That's Andy, right. Andy,
0: anything else before recommendations? I think I'm ready. Would you recommend Noel?
1: It's definitely for a certain audience. It's a family film, it's for young kids. Uh, it, like you said, if you're looking for something holiday that's fresh and new, that's a good, wholesome film, this is definitely in that vein. I probably wouldn't. Uh, recommend it to, you know, <laughs> the bold cinema goer or, the, you know, it's not going to be in the Criterion Collection or anything like that. Um, so it it is, I'm kind of on on the fence, like, yes, with caveats or to certain audiences that it's, if you're in the audience that this is aimed at, you're going to enjoy it. If you're not, you're going to hate it.
0: Right. I'm feeling the same way. If you're an Anna Kendrick fan, if you're a family looking for a very friendly film to watch, if you're looking for something Christmassy, Noel checks the boxes. You'll like it. You'll have a good time. I watched it with Christine. She liked it, and therefore I liked it. It wasn't so bad. Like, it, it really isn't. But, like, if you're going to be, if you're going to scrutinize <laughs> and talk about bold <laughs> cinema and you pop on Noel, you're not going to be into it. So, yes, with caveats. Yes, with big caveats, but totally serviceable caveats. It's yeah. the nicest review of a mediocre film I think I've ever given on this show. Um, but again, it's Christmas. So what are you going to do? And I'm excited for the holidays. Uh, we should probably wrap up the show, right? I think we're, I think we're about done here. Um, next week, we're gonna be taking a look at frozen (laughs) Two, another Disney film that I'm sure, uh, I'm expecting much more out of, I should say. Yes. And beautiful day in the neighborhood, the Tom Hanks vehicle, uh, Robin, um, Mr. Rogers, uh, picture. I don't know where I was going with Robin. Uh, Robin Hood. Um, I, I'm i excited about both of these movies. I'm, I'm a little stunned Andy didn't want to go for uh, an advanced screening of Knives Out. Uh, I figured you'd totally be all about that. Is there um, one? <laughs> Al- Alamo Draft House, Friday and Saturday. But I think both oh. locations in Dallas are running it.
1: Oh, well, you should have told me that. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> I would have all, right. That. Uh,
0: maybe, all right. Maybe Knives Out next week. We'll see. But for now, Frozen 2, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. It'll be good. There's also... Um, A small mention, because we're not going to watch it for the show, I don't think. Uh, There's this little animated picture that's come out on Netflix. It's called Klaus. K-L-A-U-S. It came out just last week. It is a completely hand-animated film. Uh, I I got an animator friend who told me, you have got to see this movie if you have any appreciation for hand-drawn animation. Because it just doesn't happen anymore. And this guy, the director, worked out this crazy technique to make it look like CGI. But it's all hand-drawn and he's been working on it for eight years or something. And like apparently every hand drawn animator in the world is pulling for this thing to be a success. So if you're into that and you're looking for something Christmassy, check out Klaus on Netflix. I'm gonna give it a give it a plug. And we should plug ourselves too. If you enjoyed the show, if you wanna see more or hear more or find out more about we're what we're doing, check us out at offscriptfilmreview.com or on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're even on YouTube. Our shows are on YouTube. It's wild. And email <laughs> us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com to let us know what you thought of these movies. Maybe what we should watch next. Any hot takes? We will read your correspondence on the air, even if there's curse words in it. Probably not if there's curse words in it, but you know, it, it's fine. Uh, let us know what you thought, I guess. And if you can do anything to support the show, just subscribe. Just hit that big fat subscribe button or rate and review, or maybe even tell a friend. That would that would be pretty cool. So I don't know. But either way, we're gonna keep doing this the show. <laughs> Because we like movies, and it's, it's, it's all good. So, from all of us at Offscript, the home of bold cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Andy, I see you swapping out Knives Out for a beautiful <laughs> the Come on. Frozen can it. Okay, it's fine. Uh, I'm Zach Lewis, Andy Draper. Thanks for watching.